Hey, what's going on? It's Rico from the Made in China podcast and Source Find Asia. In this episode, I had the privilege of talking to Andy Church. Um, and the topic was, do contracts matter in China? I think this is a topic that is highly debated when it comes to doing business in China. It's like, does it matter? You know, what kind of language should be in the contract? What kind of contract should you have in place? Um, I actually wrote an article for Enter China. Um, it's called Do Contracts Matter in China? Of course, I'll link it up um, in the show notes. But yeah, I just think that it's it's kind of like the answer is yes, but it's also no. And uh, we kind of dive into the reasons. And I also explain explain those reasons uh, quite a, quite in depth with my article. But um, going back to Andy Church, he's a really great guy. Uh, just good guy in general. Not only very, very knowledgeable, having... Uh, been doing business in China for over, I think now what, 15 years, um, you know, having first come down in, in 2002. Um, he just, one of the, th- one of the conversations I had with Andy way back in around the Canton Fair in, in October last year was just like, when he joined EnterChinese and EnterChina members, well, I just asked him like, oh, so why did you join? He said, I just wanted to give back. Like I really, have been lucky. He's really been lucky, as he as he put it, to have mentors um, around him when he was first coming up, and he just wanted to to give that value back. So hopefully, we have Andy on as a regular guest. He runs Inside Quality. It's a sourcing, but mainly QC service company, and uh, so he's not not a direct competitor because he services, I guess, larger uh, corporations, whereas I tend to focus on um, small to medium-sized or uh, new entrepreneurs. So, yeah, I think the episode was great. I think the conversation was great. I learned from him, um, and I hope you guys learn whether contracts matter in China and what what's your opinion. You know, you should, you should send us a message. Let us know if you think contracts matter in China or not. That being said... I have another announcement. I'm going to do this every week. We are hiring. We're looking for an intern, summer intern at SFA. Listen, man, I'm jealous of whoever gets the chance to to work for us. Like, we've scaled up so quickly over the past two years. Uh, being able to fly to China, work in a company like this with uh, a CEO who's only a few years older than them kind of understands. I remember what it was like for me two years ago coming down to China, just over two years ago now. Um, and I mean, just the opportunities, being part of the enter-China community, like I, you know, being friends with people like Nick, like going to the Brink offices in Hong Kong, you know, they've raised, it's it's an eight-figure business. They've raised millions and millions of dollars for IoT uh, startups. And it's just like, Besides that, I mean, within the entertainment community, we have so many people doing cool things with FPA, with crowdfunding, um, with just, you know, generally designing and and making physical products. I think Bambooty made like a MacBook skin and, and had a line for Gary Vaynerchuk. It's like there's just a cool group that I'm connected to. And then beyond that, just learning how to make things, sourcing, visiting factories, dealing with... China days dealing with hashtag this is China and moments and like all the funniness, uh, funny moments that happen in the office, outside of the office, in general China life. I feel like it would be a great opportunity for anybody that's ambitious. I don't care about qualifications. Um, of, of course, I mean, they always look nice on paper or whatever, but I care more about the, the person, um, what they're interested in, um, what their abilities are, ambition, um, detail oriented, like things like that. So anyways, if you're interested in applying, just shoot me your resume and a quick intro to info at sourcemanager.com. Without further ado, here's the episode. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Yeah, Andy, uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, it's been a long time coming. We've had a lot of issues, but I'm, I'm so happy that you were, you know, uh, patient and, and we finally, we finally been able to put this together. Well, totally understand that's one of the issues of doing business with, uh, in China and 
Um, I'm glad that we were able to finally connect. Speaking of issues doing business in China, it was a perfect segue to the topic of the podcast, which is do contracts matter in China? So I actually wrote uh, an extensive article for Enter China um, about it was called "Do Contracts Matter in China," and you know Andy is a member and he's he's very very experienced and very helpful and I actually crowdsourced some information from from Andy from Kenny from China Mike uh, I just sort of got different opinions on whether contracts matter. Um, I think that. What I found interesting about talking to people in different fields with different levels of experience, different uh, you know experiences in China and different lengths being uh, in China for different lengths of time, was that there were a lot of parallels, but I think there are also quite a few differences. Especially my recent experiences, I've only been doing business here for about two years, but uh, my recent experiences have told me have informed me different in a different way than I think a lot of you guys. So I just kind of wanted to have sort of a, a more open conversation and, you know, see where we can, where we differ, where we agree. I think it's 90% agreement, but I just wanted to have a, a talk about that and, and have it be a learning experience for the listeners. I totally agree. I think that I read your article in, in, uh, a while back and in discussions with my peers and customers that, Contracts are important, but many of us have different reasons of why we use them, not only in China, but also in the U.S. and in the West. A prime example is NDA. Uh, oftentimes, uh, people have the theory that an NDA is uh, just like a handshake. I mean, you, you, you either trust somebody or you don't, and an NDA isn't going to be a catch-all if somebody discloses information you shared with them. They're hard to enforce, but they, they are... Um, uh, a step in cementing a relationship or, or showing that you're serious about moving forward. Definitely. Yeah, I think I think the NDA is it's an interesting one. I feel like, in my opinion, like with most of the contracts, uh, when I have a, a, a factory sign an NDA, I'm not necessarily expecting them to honor it, but I do feel like it, it is a little bit of a deterrent. Um, and, and then they feel uh, uncomfortable, especially if you're still doing business with them. I think... If you, if you, if you stop doing business with them or you, you haven't spoken to them in six months or something like that, then they might breach the contract. Um, but if you're, if you're continuously, you know, working with them and placing orders, then, you know, most of the time they, they'll honor it. Or like what happened to me recently with one of my clients, uh, they, they listed her design on their website and she just happened to be going through the website looking for new, ideas and new products and then she sees her design and it was it was it was add to cart it was like ready to be <laughs> ready to be sold and uh so she contacted the she contacted me and then I contacted the supplier and we we had an email thread and we just reminded them that hey you know you did sign this NDA and you know we're we're working with you guys and it, it seems kind of strange that you'd put this up on your website and they came back and said oh well we completely forgot that this was not oh you know the new sales manager or whatever put it up and didn't realize that it was not our design and we'll take it down immediately interesting you know, i haven't uh, it's the same but uh, online but i have um a similar parallel in that I've gone into a factory showroom and seeing our customers' products, which is never good. And um, so, yeah, it, it's uh, not a good way for a factory to show um, customer how valuable they are. I'm interested, uh, if, I mean, from when you, when was the first time you started dealing with contracts in China? And what was, like, your opinion then versus now? Has it changed? Is it, is it still the same? Um could you could you talk a little bit more about your I guess your history with with doing deals in China? Well, my first experience with contracts in China was peripherally with uh, customers of ours. I was with a third party quality insurance testing and uh, lab and, and quality service provider, and our customers uh, one having contracts with us, but also working with the factories and, and being a part of the contractual agreements with testing with them. So <clears throat> those that was the first experience many years ago. Back in like 2002, um, when contracts were not as much in use as they are today, the first contract that uh, I've been involved with directly was about five years ago as we uh, evolved into 
started my business and was in a sourcing business and starting to work with the, the factories to uh, put contracts in place, both uh, NDAs, non-circumventation, uh, non-circumvent contracts. Um, those were the beginnings. And then now uh, we do contracts with uh, all the factories that we deal with. Have you had any situations where you had to like reinforce a, a contract or any situation where the supplier broke it broke it or you had a disagreement and you had to kind of negotiate? We have had issues that were as a result of deviation or breaking a clause in a contract. Uh, we have not fortunately had to go to the Chinese courts or U.S. courts for enforcing. I think that it's important to, when you have contracts with a Chinese factory, understanding where the governing law is going to be. And if you're executing a contract with a Chinese factory and you expect that you're going to have remedy in your home country, and for me that is in the U.S., most of my clients, that's going to be very difficult to enforce. So on the flip side, if you want to have a contract that is enforceable with a Chinese entity, then that governing law is going to be China, and the contract language must be in Chinese. So even before having that first contract draft, it's important for um, the party who wants the contract to be signed with a Chinese factory or supplier to understand that basic, because that's going to drive a lot of uh, what's included, you know, what the language is, um, jurisdiction is going to be the foundation of moving forward. Yeah, and then I mean beyond that, even just nine times out of ten, it's not worth enforcing because you're, you know, you're at a disadvantage being the being the Laowai in 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 China, and then just the amount of money that you might spend on on legal fees is is you know it, it might not be worth your time. Correct, and to go back to. I think part of what you were asking was, have we had issues and have we had to negotiate? So, and then I explained you know, that we have had issues, but didn't elaborate on that. So we have had issues with factories uh, and the contractual agreement with them. Fortunately, we haven't had to go to court, but we have had to negotiate with them. Uh, and in most cases, it has continued to uh allow for a, a continued relationship with the factory. So it, it was a negotiation that was mutually agreeable. Um, but we have had a couple instances where that's not been the case, and it's never uh, good because when you spend the energy and resource to find a supplier to end it on uh, you know, a note that is uh, not good for either party, isn't, a good, isn't, isn't an easy thing to do. It, it's costly to everybody. Um, so, you know, not everything ends, you know, on a happy note. What, what, in your opinion or in your experience, what do you think are the most common things get, that get breached in in a, in a contract or sales agreement? And by the way, I, when I say contract, most of the time I'm talking about a sales agreement. Of course, there's NDA, and then you mentioned NNN, uh, and, um, but most of the time it's going to be the sales agreement. So in your experience, what do you think gets breached? The What is the most common aspect of a sales agreement that gets breached? Well, I mean, so as part of our sales agreement, we also include, you know, not disclosure and not to be listed product in sales rooms or online shared with others. So that is, uh, in my experience, probably the most common breach. Secondly, in, uh, I'm not, I haven't seen your sales agreement, so if you include specifications or timelines uh, of delivery, which often um, is your sales agreement, Rico, like part of your purchase order that you issue to the factory in each order? Or what does it include? Um, our sales agreement, have you seen the sales agreement that's circulating in the inter-China community? I don't know if you've seen it. but No, I can't. I haven't have looked at it. It's in English, but we always, we always have ours uh, translated as well. But uh, it, it it does encapsulate uh, an NDA, but a lot of times we sign the NDA as part of our initial like vetting process. So you know, there's a little bit more language in, in the NDA that we use, and then the sales agreement talks about not being able to use our designs and such. But then I also have a lot of clients that are just doing OEM products, and you know they're using the factory's design. 
So in those situations, we obviously don't have NDAs. Um, it, we do include specifications. We include obviously the cost and the delivery date or expected delivery date and quality expectations. I mean, that's, that's your, that's your forte. But yeah, we, we include that we're going to do a, a during production inspection, end of, end of production inspection, FRA. And, you know, what the tolerances are, what AQL level we're going to use. And, and then we also include what happens if, if the production fails inspection, uh, what, what happens? Do they replace it? Do they, um, do they fix the, the problems and stuff like that? So we have that kind of, those kind of details in our sales agreements. Okay. So I mean, it's a contract that's similar to the, what we, what we sign with factories annually, and we don't do that on EPO or on sales agreement. So similar, uh, and I would go back to the things that are more often, most often are, are not meeting time uh, commitments and delivery, delivery time commitments. Um, quality, that's why inspections and testing are vital. Uh, so those are the things that are most often breached. And in continuing relationship with the factory, as part of that discussion, quote-unquote negotiation, it needs to be very clear that those things aren't tolerable. And going back to my early comment, there's a lot of energy and resource in finding a clear. So if they, you have other things that are running uh, well, for example, communication, um, they are fast around on providing samples, making samples, um, and then they have delivery issues, working with that factory to address the delivery issues so you can salvage that relationship is going to be a more favorable outcome for everybody than, than rather than trying to enforce a contract that stipulates that for every week that a shipment late there's a 2% penalty or a, a monetary you know, a fine or something because um, that isn't going to make up for lost sales. Uh, in my case, most of my customers are uh, have just-in-time deliveries to retailers. And if you miss your delivery spot, uh, a 2% on a PO isn't going to um, be a remedy to uh, on the other side. So it's important that if you very you have um, purchase orders or that have different criteria than an annual sales agreement or at annual purchasing contract for the factory, for example, a purchase order that may have tighter inspections or include uh, pre-production inspection, inline inspections, or tighter AQLs, that that be very clearly communicated with the factory. Yep. No, I, I 100% agree. Um, I think that, as you as you said at the beginning of that, was like... it. Kenny's talked about it. I talked about it in the article. It, I, it sets the expectation. It's ex- it sets expectation. Um, you know, them being able to sit down and you being able to sit down with them and say, hey, we're expecting this level of quality. We're expecting this to be done at this time. Um, but it's definitely not ironclad. Uh, the one of the things that I wanted, I brought up in my article uh, that I thought was different from everything that, that everybody else was saying is that I've... I, I've met, I've been dealing with one or two suppliers that I've, especially in, in Southern China, who were very much worried about the contract and very much worried about producing the products late and, you know, the late fees that were involved. And actually we had one factory that, you know, honored the, the late fee that we had. And it was, it was, it was a couple thousand dollars. I think it was, I think it was about a thousand dollars and I was, I saw that and I was like, I think, I think the times there are changing. I think that some suppliers are beginning to try to be as, um, as professional as possible and adhere to sort of global standards. And I think as well, just that the Chinese government itself is putting in, uh, strategic uh, policies and stuff to try to change the view of China in, in the global market. Yeah, I agree. And missing ship windows or shipping timelines that are specified in the contract are very important That in that um, it affects the factory's client because they're often selling to retailers or delivering to uh, other distributors who have timeline delivery commitments as well. 
So if the time, if there's timing issues, the time to address those is not when the product is supposed to be loaded up on a truck and shipped to the port. It's at the very beginning. So contracts are a tool that can be a tool to, uh, you know, in this case, missing ship windows or, or delivery timelines and whatnot to address quality issues, production issues. They're usually an indication of other problems. So, you know, one time maybe, you know, there's a, what's the phrase? Uh, first time, shame on me. Second time, or shame on you. First time, shame on you. Second time, shame on me. So the first time misdeliveries happen, then that needs to be a learning tool. Too often we look at, well, the contract said, you know, well, right, the contract said, and a fine isn't going to, it uh, is going to leave a bitter taste in the factory's mouth. Maybe the sales contact or customer service person you're dealing with at the factory is going to get fined, right or wrong. That's another discussion. But, you know, they're not going to be happy about that either. So maybe the first time something that is specified in the contract, uh, is, there's a deviation from, it wasn't, that that, that um, criteria wasn't met, that is used as a uh, learning tool, training tool to address it going forward. Uh, but you also don't want to get in the habit of always uh, just providing forgiveness and no penalty if one's spelled out. But, you know, it, it needs to be on a case-by-case, -case, you know, kind of basis. And also realistic. I mean, going to my point, and I don't want to be a broken record, but we spent a lot of time developing and finding these suppliers. And so if something can be salvaged, that relationship can be salvaged, you want to take the, the necessary steps to do so. And finding somebody on the first time they missed the ship window is may not be, unless it's a one-time off thing and it was a very large order. You know, so like I said, again, it goes to a case-by-case -case, uh, review of what the issues are. That is a that is a very, very good point you brought up there in terms of the amount of time that you spend researching and, and developing these relationships. And that reminds me of something that Kenny said in, in the article, which was that at some stage, you know, if you build up the relationship, the relationship becomes a contract. And it's almost like the, it's almost the fact that they're scared or you're scared of losing that relationship or damaging that relationship. And that's, and then that becomes something that forces them to either meet deadlines or, or, you know, treat you a certain type of way in China, you know, which I thought was a, a very interesting point. Cause I haven't, I, I mean, I have been dealing with a few suppliers for over a year and year and a half now, but I haven't gotten to a stage like what Kenny was talking about where he's been, you know, working with the same supplier for five plus years, you know, and he doesn't even sign contracts with that supplier at this stage. Well, I, I think that's differing. It would definitely, we have a differing opinion there. Yep. And that simply in, in the respect that simply having a long-term relationship with a factory yep. does not necessitate the need to have a, a, a contract. That is what I disagree with. I think that um, his comments about, uh, the the relationship is as much of a contract as the the the, the actual contract of itself is very important. Mm -hmm. But if you run into issues, especially with a long, if you have a long-standing relationship with a factory, years, you have a very viable business. I mean, you're selling lots of product because you're you know with the assumption that these are repeat orders throughout the year, not just a one-off. But even mm -hmm. if they are, if something happens, you need to have a recourse. Yeah. So I'm in the quality industry, and a large part of our business is managing our clients' uh, expectations, quality, and testing. <laughs> what did you say? I said expectations. Expectations, uh, that, right? That's that's, that's my and job. I just yeah, <laughs> I just came back from ICSO conference, which is the International Consumer Products and Health Safety Organization, uh, and we have uh, all the all four of the five CPSC commissioners were there. And if anybody listening to this does not know what the CPSC is, shame on you. Because if you sell any products into the United States, the, or, the, the governmental agency that regulates quality around those products Consumer. is the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Yeah. And so we had the new acting chairman, the old, uh, the previous uh, two chairmen ago was there. And so um, there's a big focus on safety and 
I do have a point in my long, you know, here is that if you don't have a contract in place because you have a, had had a relationship with a factory for years and you run into a situation where there's a recall, you're not going to get any help or uh, any recourse with that factory if you don't have a current contract. You know, and nobody wants a recall, but they exist every day. You know, every week, not necessarily every day, but every week there's emails from the CPSC with what's recalled. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I guess earlier this there was a Yamaha fifteen thousand dollar Yamaha piano mm-hmm. that was recalled for lead paint. You know, in one inaccessible area, really, and so I mean, and there was only nine hundred units sold. You know, and here you know, this is like going back to days of the, the Mattel when they were the forerunner in the quality industry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have, these are companies who have long, long time standing relationships with their factories. And one, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know, it could have been just a few gallons of paint that was used in this one area. Yeah, and, uh, and, and, and then sometimes it's not even the factory. It might have been the factory supplier that, that took a shortcut or, you know, made a mistake. Or So these contracts are as important as the information in a purchase order because they set expectations, they deal to, they deal detail out what is required by the factory, and so all this time is spent vetting factories, working with them to create samples, and oftentimes there's more time spent back and forth on quoting than any thought of having a contract. I mean, and I'm sure you have customers who you know don't feel the need to have contracts with their factories uh, when you're at you know, and so. Um, yeah. I have differing opinions. Yeah, and I, I always insist that they do, even yeah. if it's, even if it's, uh, like even if they don't have too much language they want to put into it, that we have a template for them to to kind of work off of, and you know, it's just like I try to make it as easy as possible for them to fill in their information, and then the other the other stuff is the most basic uh, quality standards that I always try to try to check for with suppliers. And the contract cements the relationship. We yep. talked about, you know, when there's issues and negotiations and setting the expectations. But it's also important to know, and I think we'll give credit again to Kenny, in that uh, it cements the relationship. Mm-hmm. It shows the factory you're serious. And even, and this is when I believe it is important, uh, more important at the beginning of a relationship with the factory and you're first vetting them. Uh, or maybe you, as part of the vetting process, and you sign an NDA. Mm-hmm. It shows a level of uh, professionalism. Legitimacy, professionalism, legitimacy when working out, when reaching out to a factory and say, we're interested. We found you based on you know our research that we think you can, uh, you make uh, the products or similar products to what we're interested in producing. But to go forward, we really want you to have you know, to execute this NDA. Uh, and so that shows that, uh, can show the fact that you're serious in pursuing discussions with them and how they help. So there's different levels of uh, contractual agreements with the factory. And the NDA should be one that is executed at the very beginning mm-hmm. uh, of discussions with the factory because, you know, it's just a simple, straightforward contract that, that, that you know, it's confidentiality agreement. Yeah, I, I have two two points going off of that. Um, so just to, just to clarify, I think I'm not sure what Kenny meant when he said he doesn't sign contracts because he did also specify that he always has some sort of written statement with his quality expectations and, uh, like the, you know, the product description and deadlines and per unit cost. And he said he, he definitely, he definitely makes sure that the factory boss, uh, signs off on that because he made a point about, um, you know, if you don't have anything written in place, it, it becomes your word versus the salesperson's point if something does come up, right? Um, so I, I'm not sure what, what he means by not necessarily signing a, a contract. Maybe, maybe, maybe his is just a little bit simpler than, than what we're discussing, or maybe, maybe his idea of what we, what we meant by contract is different. I would, I would love to get Kenny on the podcast yeah, to clarify, but. Yes, maybe he didn't. He doesn't execute a formal sales agreement like yep. you mentioned earlier, which I just opened ours at yep. the title sales agreement. So I, I apologize earlier. It was maybe it's too early in the morning, um, <laughs> and I wasn't thinking. Our contract is titled sales agreement. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know what was the, the second point I was going to make. 
Uh, we were talking about NDAs and just said that it's important that. Um, um, oh, that, and, uh, I was, I was, I was. The second point I was going to make is on what you said in terms of legitimacy and uh, professionalism, and it, it is a very telling thing for me as as a as a consulting, uh, as a manufacturing consulting firm, when we go to a factory and say, okay, you know, the customer likes your product, they like the samples. Um, here is our sales agreement, and here are the details, and you know, this is what we're expecting, and then they go. Oh no no no! We 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 can't sign that, or <laughs> or even even with an NDA, and then they just completely, you know, freak out or say, oh no no, this is this is too formal or whatever. And it's like, yeah, this is definitely not the kind of supplier I want to I want to be working with if they're not even willing to to sign a, a simple sales agreement with. It's not like the the expectations of the customer were crazy. They just expected them to produce the same level as the sample that they 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 provided to us. So, you know, it is a very telling thing when not just from I guess from the factory's perspective, seeing that you are professional, but also as the buyer, seeing that your supplier is 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 professional. So I think that one aspect that we have not talked about, and I recollect that we talked was that. It needs to be set down and reviewed with the factory point by point because there's a lot of information. And if it's not gone over with the factory in a meeting, ideally in a meeting, then um, there shouldn't really be any expectation that the factory knows every what they're signing. Hey, what's up, guys? Just want to make a quick announcement here. This is Rico. Um, we are hiring. We're looking for summer interns in SFA. If you guys are interested in having the experience of your life, moving over to China for a few months, uh, learning how to make things, make cool things, uh, traveling around Southeast Asia, uh, specifically China, of course, but like, uh, you know, China's Guangzhou is located in a way where we're like an hour away from Thailand and Bali and all this kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, just hanging out with me as well. Send, uh, go to the, our website, sourcemanager.com slash intern. I'll link it up in the show notes and submit your application. What advice would you give to somebody who doesn't have the capital to hire an agent and, and then they don't want to, maybe they're working or something like that and they don't have the time to fly to China, but they want to put in a, a solid sales agreement. Would you recommend that they, I guess you wouldn't recommend that they hop on a Skype call because of all the issues that we've had. <laughs> but, we'll, but Definitely. So if somebody, and given who the focus of our uh, audience is, that is, different than uh, that audience being different than some of the clients that you and I deal with, mm -hmm. that is a real real practicality in that having a face-to-face -face meeting may not be uh, feasible. Mm -hmm. So I would certainly suggest that having a call with the factory salesperson would be one, one way um, and probably the best way. So then that leads the factory to the issue if the factory does not have somebody who can have a, a good lengthy in the buyer's native language, English uh, is most common, but, you know, we, there's people in you know, there's factories who have French and German capabilities and whatnot. Uh, so that if the phone call isn't um, feasible, uh, an alternative and not using a third-party resource such as you or me or uh, in our businesses or another agent, uh, when I guess to be... You, you would have to rely on email and stressing that to, you know, you'd like them to come back with any concerns or clarify in their own language, in their own written email, uh, their understanding of what the contract entails. And that could be, okay, they understand delivery times, understand the quality expectations. Uh, noted, we cannot share, you know, that, you know, that, you know we, we all know how English is, but you know, that kind of that phrase meaning, you know, about the, the non-disclosure aspect. So um, ideally in person, if it's not an option, I would say phone call. In a phone, if not a phone call, the third uh, would be email communication and ask the factory to repeat back in written 
form and just to provide a little summary of their understanding of the contract or the, the agreement they're signing. Um, that's why it's important even you know, to, you know, between you and me or, or any of my friends, or no, I don't do this with my friends, but in, the, in business, uh, sometimes I do do this with my friends, especially right now in the political discussion, is let me, here's what I heard you say. And it is so important to repeat back what I thought I heard someone say. So, because my understanding can be different than what the intent was, mm-hmm. or what what the um, the intent, or what was what was said. Yep. And so that's why the discussion is important because when you're going clause by clause in an agreement, a contract side by side with the factory, and you say this is what it spells out, and you know. Um, and they don't understand, or why is that necessary, or ask questions about that, that's a really good dialogue. So, I mean, it's important that even written words can be, um, have different meanings to different folks. Yeah, and you, the thing is, when you do when you do that, and then you start to hear parts that they don't understand, it kind of informs you um, how to speak about things moving forward, and how to, how to deal with certain situations in the future, because then you go, well... Maybe it's not, you know, I see this all the time with my clients is they'll send an email and the language that they're using in the email is like they're using, um, they're using colloquial terms that in their mind isn't a colloquial term, but it is like a, a Western phrase that, you know, anybody in the US, Canada, maybe even Europe for that matter would understand. And then they're using it while speaking to a Chinese manufacturer and the Chinese manufacturer goes, I don't, they, completely interpreted it in a different way. And, you know, I think getting into the habit of like what you said, uh, kind of asking them to repeat to you what they understood from what you said, especially when it comes to contracts specifically, is, is super important. And another example would be exclusivity. When you're side by side with somebody, you don't have to read the contract. You say this, this clause says you will not sell my design to anybody else. Understood. I mean, you know, it's, and you don't have to go by read it, and, you know, because legal legal jargon language sometimes yeah. be jargon can be confusing. So it's the simple terms, mm-hmm. right? And you know, just uh, making sure that that uh, that's why in person is good because the legal jargon can be such a, you know, a play on words. Sometimes it's hard to understand. Uh, so you know, I, I'm a big proponent of that. Uh, and then also a point I wanted to make was that the agreement that is signed with the factory should include uh, the ability to add uh, addendums or appendix uh, to it at such point. And I'll give you an example. I have a customer who started selling on Amazon, and now they are selling to a small retailer here in my state, and they needed to add a conflict of minerals um, appendix to their sales agreement. Uh, and that simply can be done simply if you just have an appendix that can be added to a contract. And, and um, you know, so uh, they would never have thought of doing that to begin with. Uh, nobody cares about some of the social accountability or uh, conflict minerals or chain of custody, other things that when you are first starting out in business, um, don't seem to uh, have much concern, um, and maybe rightfully so. I'm not going to make a a personal judgment on that. (laughs) But it's things that need to be aware of. And if you have an idea where you want to grow your business, and someday it's more than just selling online uh, via one or two outlets, then you should also um, look at factories uh, in a different light at the very beginning. That is a good point. I know, Andy, you have to uh, you have to head out soon, right? Um, so just yeah, to, I have fifteen minutes or so. Fifteen minutes, sure. Uh, just in close. If you want, I mean, it's up. To, I mean, um, I, you know, are you going to talk to Mike and interject between the two of us? There won't be any backlog back and forth with me and Mike. But <laughs> is your idea the podcast to uh, ask him some questions and then? 
spice it all together? No, that's gonna be. I'm I'm way I'm I'm too amateurish for that. <laughs> I still need a, <laughs> I still need another year of doing this. Like I'm just I'm getting to a stage now. Now that I I'm outsourcing the editing, um, I can be a little bit more creative with it. But like, I do want to get to a stage where I could I could do things like that. But it does take a long time. That that I think that would require more resources than I have. At this moment in time. Um, but I mean, going back to that, like, I think that we discussed this before. This is kind of off topic, but I'd love to have you on, you know, more often. And then we can have debates about, you know, other topics besides contracts and stuff. Well, uh, and absolutely. And it just so happens the last month, you know, we're Chinese New Year. Mm-hmm. I took uh, a few days off and then I was at a conference at the same time every year. So, you know, this next, my, my, my availability is not such as it has been in the last two weeks, so I apologize for all that. But uh, definitely, I'd love to be, you know, on uh, calls or topics that, where I can add value and share my knowledge and, or my opinions. I guess, um, just in closing, I guess that's. I guess we can summarize our opinions on on contracts, and then I'd love to, you know, talk about your company a little bit, and then I've got a few uh, closing questions that I always ask people. Okay, absolutely. So my, my in summary, executing contracts, sales agreements uh, with factories is important on several fronts. First, it shows the legitimacy and professionalism in dealing with the factory. Uh, it's not a – you're not being um, – uh, overstating your size or capabilities or what your order volume, you're showing them you're serious. So contracts from the very beginning establish that your your inquiry is serious. Second, they set the expectations. They allow you the opportunity to uh, sit down or have a phone call or a discussion with the factory over what their expectations, what your expectations are and what they're committing to. And that is cost, delivery, quality, um, you know, at lead times. Um, so very important from that aspect. Third, uh, and, and fortunately, and I'm going to knock on wood here, is that uh, they provide the uh, a mechanism for recourse when something goes wrong. Hopefully that's uh, just issues such as missing a ship window that can be easily rectified in most cases, shipping uh, out a few days later or a week later. But if... Uh, um, the the problems ever come up with a recall or severe quality issues, then the service agreement contract that was executed with the factory can detail out how that is handled. And, and um, the quality uh, is one of those things that sometimes gets overlooked in the sales agreement and uh, is, is vital as well. So in summary, uh, the three areas that uh, contracts represent for me and my and my clients in, in dealing with factories are legitimacy, professionalism, expectations, and recourse. Mm-hmm. Before I, I go into my summary, uh, do you do you think that to a certain extent, because you are in quality control and that's that's your your expertise, do you think that plays a fact into how you uh, dis- how how you view contracts versus? Let's say uh, somebody that's been a sourcing agent for ten years. I certainly think that my my experience and my uh, background have an influence in contracts versus somebody coming from sourcing. Uh, and but I don't think that's uh, good or bad. I think that one aspect that influences my opinion about the use of contracts is documentation. Document, document, document. Everything have processes in place, and I view a contract as being one of those. Um, so, um, you know, I, I look in, in sometimes uh, the quality things uh, that need to be included is uh, can be done in an appendix uh, to the contract. But I'm, I certainly my experience and background influence my view on, on on most things. Yeah, I was I was just thinking about that in terms of uh, I I just know that. I interviewed uh, Renault, who runs a sourcing uh, a, a QC company a while ago, and just certain conversations I've had with you, I've noticed that when you're when you're in the QC uh, business inspection business, I just feel like there's a certain level of attention to detail that is is beyond. Even I think I'm a detail oriented person, 
but some, when I when I talk to you and I talk to other people in QC, it's just a little bit extra. So I was, I was thinking about that. Certainly, and then the contracts have to be very detailed. So I think my my were how I got into this business uh, has influenced how I what I feel should be in a contract. And I mean, certainly, I in many aspects I like looser is better, more vague, uh, because then that's a whole different. Um, uh, it, it allows you some leeway. And so if things are detailed too much, that may not necessarily be good for the supplier either, i.e., uh, for example, payment terms. If a contract says payment terms are going to be uh, due upon uh, past inspection and the buying entity uh, wants to move to you know longer terms or is, for whatever reason wants to delay payment, and it's not that scenario isn't uh, specified in the contract, and that can lead to issues. And so it's a two-way street. This isn't all about, and, and I never want to imply this is taking advantage of a factory. It's setting expectations, and those expectations are two-way streets. The supplier expects that the buyer is going to do certain things and fulfill their obligations to the contract as well. So expectations are a two-way a two-way street. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, I guess I I mean I agree with you a lot, and I talk about that in articles. I feel the same way. I feel that it sets expectations. Um, it puts your best foot forward. I think it's it's extremely important important whether your order is worth you know a thousand dollars or it's worth a hundred thousand. Um, you know, I, and I feel like people are impatient a lot of times, so that's why they they think that hey, you know, I'm just gonna go based on a handshake or based on an invoice. And it can save you a lot of issues moving forward. But at the same time, it is more of a, uh, when it get, does get breached, that is more of a negotiation now. And you, you're going back to the contract and saying, all right, you know, we expected the product to be completed by this date. It's going to be done a week later. What are you going to do for us? And, and most of the time, most factories will be understanding and say, well, you know, we'll add an, a few extra, a few extra cartons of the of the product or on the next order will give you a credit and that's building the relationship because they're saying on the next order meaning you know you're going to be working with us for a while we'll give you some sort of compensation and you know i feel like that's that's the way people should approach contracts is like be as diligent as possible but also be as as realistic as possible in the sense that you know this is not going to be something that you can enforce it might not be worth enforcing unless you are you know michael jordan brand and you you are able to get your name back in china um and with with the billions of dollars behind you so yeah i mean i think i think andy summed up everything else pretty well um andy so i know this this podcast wasn't necessarily like interviewing you but i think that people might be curious i i will talk about you in the intro but just can you give a little bit of background and and you know just a, a brief a brief background on how you joined EC and I guess how how we met? Well, I've been doing business in China for fifteen years. I lived in China twelve of those fifteen years. Started off in the quality arena, working for a U.S. based third party testing uh, lab and uh, inspection and audit service provider, and then went out on my own three years ago uh, and opening up a sourcing, quality and sourcing agency. We primarily work with U.S. Um, Western-based companies who are manufacturing private branded products for retailers. They don't have their own presence in Asia. So we're boots on the ground in country. Uh, most of our work is in China, but we do work in Vietnam, Thailand, and India as well. And uh, we work with companies of all sizes and work with uh, entrepreneurs and, and small business people who are selling online, People who are just have a napkin idea, an, an idea on a napkin. We're, we're we're doing some prototype development, so we are a sourcing agency from prototype all the way through shipment. Okay, and um, one question I like to ask people is just, what do you think is the smallest thing you've done in your business that's brought you the largest results? I missed the last. That brought what positive results. Uh, what do you? What is the smallest thing you've done in your business that's brought you the the largest results? The largest result, the largest uh, ROI. Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
Wow, that's a tough. That's a great question. Um, I say a couple things, and it, it's because I just came back from a conference this week, mm-hmm. and you you alluded it to earlier because of my quality background. Is the attention to detail? That detail could be misspelling somebody's name uh, at the factory that you're you're dealing with. Uh, you know, the Chinese often take uh, a Western name that uh, sometimes is a unique spelling on a on a, on a mainstream name. John with two N's or <laughs> or something like that. So sometimes the attention to detail and the people that you're interacting with because your contact at the factory is the gateway um, to getting you know, your, your gatekeeper at the factory, dealing with production quality, visiting the factory. So you know, getting the details right with that person. And on the flip side, your customers, understanding you know the things that are important to them in their personal life that you develop a relationship, their spouse's names or child's names or when their birthday is. So sometimes non-business uh, things, details, can make all the difference in your business. So, I mean, to me, that's, that's uh, something that takes very little time. It shows you care, and it can make a world of difference in, on both sides of your, uh, both, you know, the upstream and downstream of your business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we talked about that as well. It's just like at the uh, InterChina event that we had, and I was I was talking about sending uh, maple syrup to suppliers for Chinese New Year. You know, and it's just it's something something a little bit different, and it shows that you know you you you're acknowledging you know their culture, and then at the same time uh, bringing a little bit of your culture into play, and uh, it, it can go a long way. Um, you know, I have a suggestion for you. If you ask that question at the end of every year podcast or, or certain, you know, uh, maybe not repeat, somebody repeat guests, I bet that alone would be a great segment, piecing all those together when you figure out how to do uh, splicing. Uh, a great seg. Sorry, could you say that again? When you are when you get to the point where you can splice from different interviews, yeah, asking that quite all the answers to that question about what's the smallest, what's the smallest thing you've done, uh, the Pareto principle, had the biggest return or, yeah. or impact. Um, I think would be fascinating, and that's like a that's if I could or something. If I started, could, right? If I could, yeah, the it's the Pareto Pareto's principle, eighty twenty principle, which is right. that uh, yeah, twenty percent of what you do will, will bring eighty percent of your results. Right. And then, 80, I mean, I could, and I, you know, yeah. I, during the day today, I'll probably think of numerous other things. Yeah. And and depending on where you are in your workday or how your week has been, yeah. and for me, that came about because I just came back from a conference for people I haven't seen in a year, and I had a conversation last year with a potential client or a lead, mm-hmm. met with them, and this year I remembered the the, the the guy's wife's name and his kid's name from a year ago. And, you know, that led to, okay, well, we're ready to deal with you. <laughs> All right, well, that that probably didn't happen because I remembered his wife's name and his kid's name 15 minutes earlier and we were talking. But it certainly, you know, didn't hurt. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. It it does, and I mean, I talk I talk about that. I try to enforce that with my my uh, my staff, and and just the company culture is just like, you know, write everything down, take notes, take notes, take notes. I know it's boring, but it helps. You know, it helps in the future because you're trying to keep so much information in your brain. Um, if you can try to pay as much, if you can try to remember as many details as possible, it's always going to be beneficial for you, and, and I think it makes the difference between you know, an okay business versus a really great business or, you know, somebody who does okay in, in, in their job versus somebody who does amazing in their job is, you know, that extra, extra 10% or whatever that you remember. Um, yeah, I know. I mean, I have to give credit to Tim Ferriss for that question because I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss's podcast, and he asked that question from time to time, and then I I just kind of took it and had incorporated it into my uh, my podcast questions. Um, final final questions would be: Are the if there were three books that you could recommend, either three books, three podcasts, or three, uh three books, three podcasts, or three movies, for that matter, um, that you would recommend somebody watch, listen to, or read um, to get to know you better, what would they be? Wow, that's a good... <laughs> three? Okay. Uh, 
Good to Great by Jim Collins is an excellent book on oh, Lifetime Company. I, I uh, love that book. I, I, why am I not surprised that you read that book? I love that book. Yeah. I just I just read that uh, four months ago. Yeah, yeah, I read that. Uh, well, I don't know, many years, maybe ten or more years ago. I don't know when it came out, and it's actually um, uh, one of these books I, I I like to read again. I think it's probably been out about fifteen years or so. But a Good to Great uh, business book. Um, I think that uh, Harlan Corbin, also a book, it's important that uh, not everything in your life revolve around work. And so having uh, another author, if you like to read, uh, and for me, so anything by Harlan Corbin, because that balances out, uh, kind of takes me away uh, when you're traveling or whatnot. So anything by Harlan Corbin is the second book. And then... Um, uh, well, since you said get to know me, I'm talking to it is golf. Learn to golf, play golf, watch golf, sports. Anything to do with sports, I I, uh, I enjoy watching. I'm not a sports junkie, although I enjoy watching stuff. So um, those three, good to great. Harlan Corbin and a sports sports sports. Right. good. Um, is there? I guess that's it. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on that we didn't say, or anything else that you wanted to to leave the people with? And how how can people yeah, reach you as well? One, one last thing about contracts, uh, and also I guess this goes to your, your comment earlier or question or chain address is how I got involved in InterChina, and it's because of a mutual friend of ours, Mike Michelini, who got involved with you in InterChina, and how great of a resource it is for the buying community. And while it's geared toward uh, you know. Smaller, you know, and people are selling on Amazon or maybe the smaller, smaller guy. The resources out there are amazing. So don't ever think you can't afford a contract when resources exist. Exist on, as you said earlier, on Enter China. People in the community are willing to share uh, their knowledge and information. So it is important to know that it. The I can't afford it is not a good excuse. I mean, that's just that is that is just an, that's just an excuse. And I hear that so many times with different things. And for a contract, that applies. Legal work, you go to get a, you know, you want to go to, uh, you know, the big firms. You're going to be, have to pay big money, but that shouldn't preclude you from uh, having a contract uh, in place with your suppliers because there's resources out there that are available that can provide you uh, contracts at uh, minimal cost. Totally agree. And I mean, for example. You can you can get a contract template for free uh, through through EnterChina through I know there are other uh, sourcing companies such as mine. But, well, my contract is the one on EnterChina, but like there are other sourcing companies and other manufacturing companies that provide templates at either a really low cost or for free. So I I don't think there's any excuse in terms of not being able to get some sort of agreement in place. And these days there's so many resources as you pointed out. Whether it's Enter China or other podcasts or, you know, uh, blogs and stuff that tell you what to do. And these are people that are in China and have these experiences and are not that far ahead of you. And I just, I just, I, I, I get surprised actually when I, when I have certain clients who are maybe fans of Enter China or <laughs> certain, a few clients that are maybe members who, are not necessarily following uh, all the tenants that we talk about, but yeah, yeah. So that would be one of my takeaways. Mm-hmm. You, you're not too small and not too cheap to get a contract. Mm-hmm. All right, Andy. Uh, really appreciate you being on the podcast. If people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Uh, online insight-quality.com um, is our website, and there's my contact information and way to get a hold of me. It's on there. My email is andy, A-N-D-Y dot church, C-H-U-A-U-R-C-H, at insight, I-N-S-I-G-H-T dash quality, Q-U-A-L-I-T-Y dot com. I sure appreciate your time, Rico. I got a, um, a WeChat from Mike while we were talking, so maybe he was sharing a tidbit about contracts with me that 
we'll have to uh, include next time. All right. Yeah, we'll definitely have more opportunities to be on the podcast and once we maybe set up some sort of flow. But yeah, guys, if you want to reach out to us, you can contact us at info at sourcefinasia.com. And of course, you can go to the website sourcefinasia.com slash made in China if you want to listen to old episodes. Of course, the resources that uh, Andy mentioned as well, the books that he's read, some of the other uh, things that we talked about in the podcast will be there on the website for you guys to review. All right. Cheers. All my friends are eating, taking slow. Wait for them to ask you who you know. Please don't make any sudden moves. You don't know the half of the abuse. Welcome to the room of people who have rooms of people that they love one day. Dr. Way. Just because we check the guns at the door doesn't mean our brains will change from hand grenades.